I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, as we are looking at how the Bible records this thing called church, this movement, our discipleship communities, how it spread. And the question that simply needs to be asked is how exactly did just a few not rich, but in just a few decades, a few generations, quickly overwhelmed one of the most influential and powerful empires in history in just a few decades? And that's a great question, and I think one of the things we have to ask is, how is it the church is here to begin with? And so the book of Acts tells us how that happens. It is the acts of the Holy Spirit, and our prayer as we read this is, God, can you do this same work again? As we are by the same name church, can we also be of the essence of the church, of the movement? And so part of my prayer is that we move away from what is traditional institutional to recapture what is movement, what is at the heart of this. Uh, We have uh, in my office a uh, little... I don't know what you call this, a, a place where you have a candle, and above it is this bowl, oil diffuser or something like that. And so the idea is you put just a few drops of this oil uh, in water, and you put the candle underneath it, and with that heat of the candle, it diffuses the oil into the room, and so it smells good. So if you come in on a certain time of day, you might smell apples and cinnamon. You might get a little hungry. Uh, that's been the effect of it on me. Uh, but, uh, you know, generally it smells good. And so as I read the scripture, I think that what you see in Acts chapter 8 is God taking the church, this discipleship community, and diffusing it, not in a, a bomb sense, but in a spreading out the essence of what it means to be in Christ. So it's no longer just in Jerusalem, but Judea, Samaria, and indeed in the uttermost parts of the earth. In fact, that's how the book of Acts begins, doesn't it? You remember Acts chapter 1-8, Jesus gives them this commission. You're to go forth, you're to be witnesses unto me, and you will receive power so that you can be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. As Acts, Luke records this history from chapter 1 until you get to chapter 8, That hasn't really happened yet. In Jerusalem, yes. To parts of Judea, yes. But in Acts chapter 8 verse 1, you see how God works to fulfill Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And it's not at all how you might want it to be or hoped it would happen. But it is how God did it. And so let's read together Acts chapter 8 verse 1 and go through verse 25. And so we're going to look at how the movement moves and how it works. So we're going to stand together as we read Acts chapter 8, verse 1 through 25. So remember, we end with the stoning of Stephen. A man named Saul was there, verse 1, approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. Entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were were scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so that there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city, And amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. 
They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they had paid attention to him because for a long time he amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. You may be seated. So let me ask you this question before we really get started. Do you really want to see God's power working in your neighborhood, in your family, in Nightdale? Is that your goal? Would you like to see God move in Raleigh? In a wholesale way. We are seeing movements around Raleigh, but really not too much in East Raleigh. So let me ask you, do you want to see that? Is that your prayer? How much do you want to see that happen? It comes at a cost. But I would just challenge you, that Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus in Acts 1.8 has assigned you that task, that challenge. He has asked for his mission to be your mission. And it just so happens you're the one that lives in East Raleigh or Nightdale, Wendell, this eastern section. And so we have to start asking and start praying, do we want to see the movement of God happen a discipleship movement happen here if that is not true of you then i'm going to be honest with you the next of what i'm going to say to you really is going to strike you as irrelevant if this is your mission you're going to see a lot of practical purposes here so I've got to put that to you, but I would say to you that God has asked us to be a pleasing aroma everywhere we go. I want to read to you 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2, verse 14 through 17, because I think it has an impact here. This passage says, Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. How many people know about Jesus because of you? caught the scent of his life because of you says we are the aroma of christ to god among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life who is sufficient for these things for we are not like so many peddlers of god's word but as men of sincerity as commissioned by god in the sight of god we speak christ so that's our job we're to put off an aroma of Christ. Yeah, anyone of you know the bee balm flower? Some of you who work in flowers, it's, it's, a, it's a fairly fast spreading thing. But one of the ways you recognize it is you can take it. It has this little red spiky uh, flower to it. But you can take it, and if it tears or if it crushes, you can always catch the scent. 
So before the flower comes, you can smell it. And so we are to be like that. Before the ever flower comes, there is to be a scent that is unique to Christians. And I'm not talking about a physical sense here, but an, an atmosphere that is impacted by Christians. So let's talk about how this happens. We see, as we read here, at Saul approved of this execution, he is witnessing something of Stephen. And we saw this last week of how he endured this death spoke like Christ, reacted like Christ, forgave like Christ, had a a vision of Christ like a priest in the heavenly places as he's being stoned. Something about that radicalizes Saul. We're, We're talking today, and one of the grave concerns in the world is, why is it that so many Muslims are being radicalized? And we were working against the radicalization of Muslims, so they will stop killing people. I agree with that to a point. But it seems here that if I am going to love right Christ loves, a Muslim is going to get radicalized to try to kill me. I think about Martha Myers. Some of you may know this name. Uh, Martha Myers was in Yemen, was a doctor in Yemen. Uh, Mike Griffin Carey knew her intimately, uh, encouraged her, talked with her. Uh, but in 2002, as a, being a doctor in a hospital owned by us, Southern Baptists, in Yemen, it was the last day of the hospital's operation. We were closing it down because it wasn't producing the fruit we wanted it to produce. And so here they were on the last day, a, a man comes in with a machine gun, uh, pretending like it's a baby, a uh, sick baby, and comes in and follows the doctor and some of her colleagues and shoots her and two other employees and kills them right then. Asked later on, why did you do this? He simply said, well, you know, my wife had visited Martha Myers prior to that, and she came back and spoke and said, no Muslim doctor treated me like that Christian woman treated me. No Muslim doctor showed me love like that Christian woman doctor did. And the man said to himself, if this is true of this type of woman, then she will impact Yemen, and I can't have that. And he becomes radicalized. And shoots her. She was from Alabama. She chose to be buried in Yemen. There, we drove by. I could see from a distance where this was at. It was was an engraving stone. She loved God. And there, in the funeral in Yemen, 40,000 people of the village around came. And saying, He is Lord. You see, <laughs> it's been said that the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs, will become the seed of the church. What if the radical elements we're seeing are not just because of America's stance, Guantanamo Bay? What if it was because? Christians are dying in the Middle East out of love for their Savior. That's going to that's gonna be a result. We see it right happen. Saul becomes radicalized out of his zeal for God. He's, he gives testimony to this in Galatians chapter 1. He says, concerning my zeal for God, it was to the point of ravaging the church, of kidnapping and putting in prison and beating men, women, Children, and taking this, 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 destroying their homes. He says, that was my zeal for God. He thought he was worshiping God by doing this. And so we see his response uh, as he is approving of his execution. And there arose a great persecution, and it was embodied by a man named Saul. And so everyone scatters to the regions of Judea and Samaria, like Acts 1-8, Jesus told him to do. Except the apostles. We're going to get to that in just a little bit. And so we see in verse 2 and verse 3, this contrast that Luke is putting out. Devout men uh, buried Stephen and cried greatly, but this guy, Saul, just took it and ravaged the church. 
What he didn't realize is that he was attacking Jesus Christ. And Jesus calls him on the carpet for that, on the road to Damascus, and says to Saul, why are you beating and attacking me? You need to understand that when we attack the church, we're attacking Christ. And, and Jesus says, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. You can attack me. Listen, and when, don't, be, don't be discouraged when you see Christians on TV being beheaded and burnt alive. Or worse, which will come. Say, God, use this. Use this for your glory. For the name of Christ. He can and will and has used this. I think about the Chinese Christian church. You know, we have adopted Puga County. Puga County is in a province called uh, Sichuan Province. Uh, Back a number of years ago, uh, they had a uh, major earthquake. Some of you may remember hearing about this earthquake, and, and, it, and especially the city of Chengdu, which if you were to fly to Puga County, you would fly into Chengdu as the major city to get to Puga County. And there in Chengdu province where this earthquake was, was this incredible disaster that was happening. In the 1950s, after World War II, uh, the communist government came in and kicked out all the Western uh, missionaries. I said, you, you guys are too much of influence. Like the Boxer Rebellion that we looked at last week, uh, this happened again. And it happens about every 50 so years, which makes us kind of a little nervous about what's going to happen uh, and, and times come. But it's the trend of China. And so in the 1950s, this happened again. And so they thought, well, this, is, this will take care of it. But what they didn't realize is that the seed of the gospel was already in the Chinese people. And so in the 2000s, when this, pro- this earthquake it happens in the Sichuan province, uh, even though it was only 5 to 7% uh, that were Christians in that area, in 2008, when this happens, uh, 68,000 people died. A million Chinese people volunteered and came to do relief work. Most of those were Christians. Out of the 5 to 7% that were Christians in that area, most of the volunteers were Christians. Not so much in Puga County. That's not true there, it being a minority people group. And so there's cultural barriers and geographical barriers from there in Chengdu. But it's interesting to see this, and, and here's one of the reasons why. The Chinese government thought they could kill it by taking off the leaders. But what they didn't know was that the gospel was not isolated to the leaders, but moved among the ordinary people. So listen, here's one of the first clues and characteristics we get about this movement. That the movement moves among the ordinary. What I mean by the ordinary not the apostles, all right? You know, so what happens to the apostles? Where, where do they go? They stay in Jerusalem. Who else leaves? Everyone else. So the, the apostles there are kind of creating some stability and teaching and also lets us know that perhaps it's the Hellenist Jews that are getting especially attacked, the Greek-like Jews that are especially getting attacked. Philip uh, is a... Uh, a Greek-like Jew. He's one of the deacons. Stephen was a Greek-like Jew. He was the one that's killed. So they seem to be getting marked here, and the apostles are able to stay. But the thing is, is that the, the church is at its healthiest when it no longer has this great divide between the pastor and clergy and the laity. When we have seen in church history this great divide between the two, we see the church at its weakest. You know when the Crusades occurred? Is when we had this huge priest movement and, and the laity weren't able even to read the Bible in their common language. And so you have these gross distortions occur uh, in that. And so when our church is at the healthiest is when there is not this huge divide between me as a pastor and you as a member. One of the reasons why an elder form is important is it empowers the lay people, to do the work of the ministry to bear the brunt of this. So what happened in China? They thought, well, let's remove the leaders. The Catholic Church basically folded until the government said, okay, we'll give you some more property. Why? Because the ministry of the church was done in the priest and the priest was removed. 
But evangelicals were able to continue to grow and thrive because they didn't have a priest class. Listen, sometimes, you know, you say, Pastor, I want you to pray for me. And I'll be glad to pray for you as a brother and sister in Christ and as your pastor. But do not, please, do not come to it with the thought that maybe your prayers are more effective because you're a pastor. Don't come to say, Pastor, can you witness to my neighbor? Or, Pastor, can you witness to my family? Listen, that lets me know that I have failed. Because part of my job is to help you witness to your neighbor, to teach you how to witness to your neighbor, to witness to your family, that you know you can pray before Christ and that God hears your prayer because of Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying? It must move among the ordinary. And so everybody is going out and they're sharing the gospel. Philip, Stephen, not apostles. We're just doing this. And so let's see what happens as they go about. Verse 4, those are scattered about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Not only does the movement work among the ordinary, the discipleship movement works through deeds and words. Deeds and words with the intention of joy. All right? Deeds and words. Here you've got miracles. There are sick people being healed, folks who have been plagued by demons, they're being set free from that. And so they're listening. All right. So some of you are thinking, well, okay, uh, Pastor, you just said this is for the ordinary, but that doesn't really sound ordinary. I mean, I hadn't done any exorcisms recently. Uh, Pastor, well, when do you start the exorcist school? All right. Um, well, when do you start the healing school so that I can do that too? All right. So listen, first of all, this is a work of God that God himself does. There's some unique things that he's done in this early church. But I would say and caution you, that God still can do these things. Let me ask you the question, when was the last time you prayed for demons to be set free from someone? Sometimes we have not because we ask not. Simple fact is, the power of God is there and is working for those who are under the authority of God. Sometimes we are not knowing the power of God because we are not under the authority of God. We have got sin in our life and we are glad of it. So don't be surprised when there is very little power of God at work through us. And so here this Philip is and he's under the authority of God. God is working through him. But I would want you to understand that it's not just in miracles that deeds are being done. In fact, uh, in Acts chapter 9, you've got this example of a lady named Tabitha or also Dorcas which is a tough name. Uh, but here, she is known for her good works of her serving uh, those who are out with the making of clothes. And so when she dies, there's a great lamentation over her in her sickness. What I would want you to know is that the signs being done isn't just miraculous things, but the generosity of God's people. I've already shared with you before that the historians were looking at this and they realized that the Christians of their day were spending more money in helping the poor and the oppressed than other religions spent on their temples. One of the great tragedies of our building-focused church in America is that we have left the serving the community focus of a church. And the question I would seem to ask is, what if we spent as much money in serving Nightdale as we did in building a building. I'm going to tell you that there are people all over Raleigh that are hungry for someone who believes the gospel like that. If they just could hear that there are Christians doing that type of thing, that's just all they're waiting on. They're waiting to see, do Christians really believe what they say they believe? Or is it just another ploy for power? 
just a thought for us. And so here they are doing this. And in Acts chapter 4, we see that the Christians are, are serving one another, sharing with everything that they have, even with the poor person among them. So all the Jerusalem were seeing these Christians and taking care of need. And so guess what happens when they scatter? They take this generosity and compassion with them. And so this Samaritan city is starting to get inundated with the refugees out of Jerusalem. And they all seem to have this characteristic. And so what is the end result? Well, there is joy. Verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. Let me ask you this question. Is Nightdale have much joy because there's believers here? Are they, are they glad that Green Pines Baptist Church exists? Let me ask you this question. Is Mingo Creek glad that Green Pines is just right up the road? Is Princeton Manor glad that this church is here? Is Planters Walk rejoicing that there is this church here? Is your neighborhood, let me ask you this question. Is your neighborhood glad that you are there as a Christian? Do they know? That you're a Christian. You see the challenge here? That is true of a movement in the early church. How does a movement from a bunch of folks who really have no power in just a few decades impact the most powerful empire in history? It is with generosity, sharing, compassion, and Sharing about Jesus Christ. Everywhere they go, they talk about Jesus. There's a word someone has said we kind of laugh about it called gospeling. It's not really a word, I don't think. Um, but we'll make it a word. Gospeling. And so it's this idea of sharing the gospel and gossiping. <laughs> Usually that's a bad thing, right? We're talking about people, about something else. And they don't really have ownership to that solution or the problem. And we're just, you know, it's on our heart and mind. We're like, well, you know, for whatever reason, we, we gossip. The great tragedy of that is that instead of using our lips to talk about good things, we talk about bad things and we broadcast bad things when God has given us something to broadcast that's worth broadcasting. And so here these people are, wherever they go, they say, hey, do you hear about Jesus? Did you hear what happened in Jerusalem? Did you hear about the resurrection? Did you hear about this about Pentecost? Did you hear about the Spirit of God moving in a group of people? Have you heard about what's happened in my life? Can I tell you about that? And it's just this desire. And so what we've got is a marrying of deeds, of kindness, of generosity, of compassion, signs that point to the gospel and the speaking of it. The speaking of the gospel. One of the things we tend to do is go one or the other. There's been huge swings in the church. It's like, okay, let's make sure we go door to door and ask the question, hey, do you know what would happen to you if you were to die tonight? And that's a good question to ask. But you know what's even better? Is when someone comes up to us and talks about it and they say, hey, you're different. You have a generosity. You give freely. And together as a church, you do things that no one else does. Why is that? And what does that have to do with the Jesus that you're always talking about and praising? Sharing the gospel is a celebrative talking about Jesus. It's not just always an anxious, okay, here's the moment of decision, moment of confrontation. It is involving that, but even more, it is a celebration. Let me share with you what Jesus is doing in my life. Let me talk to you about him. And so there is this movement that works through deeds and words with the intention of joy. I've shared with you before how I've just been convicted about this a number of years ago. I tell the story over again uh, how God just impressed my heart first with this was being in another country and seeing that community's uh, response to an evangelical church. And that evangelical was encircled by the uh, Russian Orthodox all around them who wanted them out, uh, a communist government, a dictatorship that really couldn't, didn't have much for them either. And yet the only way they were able to survive in that situation was because the community said, 
Don't do anything with that church because that church takes care of our orphans. That church helps us with the poor and provides many services for us. Don't go away with that church. And I came away from Eastern Europe coming back here thinking, who's speaking for Green Pines because we provide joy? And I think maybe even more personal, who's speaking up for your family? Who's speaking up for your family because you provide joy? It has been since that, that, that's where the Love Out Loud direction first was birthed, is let Nightdale know that we love them. Let Hodge Road know that we love them. I'm going to tell you that is a school that is suffering. And instead of us thinking, man, I wish they'd get their act together, it's hurting retail sales around here. No one's moving in like they ought to be. Wrong type of person's moving in. No, that is the type of person that is saying, hey, thank God, because I found that they, <laughs> listen, I grew up in North Raleigh, they don't let, they don't normally let churches do anything in schools. And I came here and I thought, you want to do that for us? And they cry. And they literally asked us, would you come and pray in our hallways? Do y'all know how crazy that is here in North Carolina and America? But they did that. There's are folks from all over. They're not just from Nightdale. Some of you realize that. They're from all parts of Raleigh. A lot of them don't speak the language. A family song. They have reduced lunches. They don't have much influence, much power. But you know what? When we start giving out resources on people like that, it lets us know and lets God know and lets the community know we serve a different agenda than power and whether someone can pay us back. You understand what I'm saying? You see this right here, how Philip goes into these areas and Samaria. And so let, let me take you down to the next uh, characteristic of this movement, this discipleship movement, movement uh, works among the ordinary, moves among the ordinary. That means it's got to be you, church. It's got to be you that says, I want to be a part of this movement. I want to make a difference in my neighborhood. I want to make a difference at Hodred. I want to go sharing the gospel and showing to others. I want to pay it forward, all right? I wanna, that's a good terminology. The fact is that we're moving from what Jesus Christ has done for us. And we're pushing that forward to what he's done for us. I want to do that. And then we're seeing that it moves them on the ordinary. It works through the deeds and words with the intention of joy. But listen, the discipleship community move, movement reconciles races. Look, who, who's, who is Philip talking to? What city did he move to? Samaria. All right, you remember that Jesus said Jerusalem, Judea, and then he said Samaria because there was a cultural difference. It was close by, easy within uh, a few hours walk. They could get to Samaria, but the people were so different. They really despised one another. They hated one another. There was a racial difference. Interesting enough, this happened uh, in early in Jewish history. When uh, Assyria comes in and took over the northern kingdom of, of Israel, they took off the high class of society, took them away, and sent in the Syrians and others to come in to intermarry with the remaining Jews. And so these people, now decades later, still count themselves as Jews, uh, but the Jews don't count them as Jews, that they are mixed up and they're not nearly as good they cannot trace their ethnicity. In fact, when Nehemiah and Ezra comes back and they're trying to rebuild the temple, these folks want in on this, rebuilding the walls and the temple. And they said, no, you can't do it. You're not like us. You're not one of us. And so from that point on, there has been a feud of history. In fact, the Samaritans build their own worship spot. And there's this rivalry going on. Uh, in fact, that's why it was pretty amazing when Jesus stopped in Samaria, talked to a Samaritan woman. And she asked the question of the day. He says, you Jews say you can only worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus responded by saying, I'm going to tell you there will be a day when God is looking for those who will worship in spirit and truth. It doesn't matter what city you're at. In spirit and in truth. So they have fostered hate with one another. 
Um, they antagonized the Jews. There was one heinous thing of launching pigs into the temple on the eve of a Passover. Jews deemed that as unclean. They're preparing for Passover. They did all the ritual process, and all these pigs come flying, and they got to get it all over again. All right? Sounds humorous to us, removed by a few centuries, uh, but back then, I assure you, those were fighting things. The travelers that were going back and forth, the Samaritans would, would ravage them, would attack them, uh, rob them. There's a reason why Jesus picked out and loving your neighbor that it was the Samaritan who took care of the Jew because the Samaritan was the hated race. And so here, Philip is in this area and he's being embraced by the Samaritans. And interesting enough, he is wanting to see much joy in the city. How does this happen? They see this happen, and, and the Jews in Jerusalem are kind of getting a check here. Like, wait a second. The Samaritans are doing what? Philip's doing what? All right, send Peter. Send the guys down and see what's really going on. Because, really, could God be doing this among the Samaritans? And so we see what happens. We're going we're gonna to talk about the magician in a little bit. But here, uh, the men come down, Peter and John. And it is through the laying on of his hands that the Holy Spirit now comes, which is kind of interesting because in Acts 1, uh, we see that it was more of a, they, it was a tearing uh, that they were doing and the Spirit of God came. And, but now it's kind of like this second installment that happened through the praying and laying on of hands. You're going to see that when there is a second installment, so to speak, when the Spirit of God comes secondary like this, not instantaneous with their, with their decision to follow Christ, is always done to show the Jews, the Jew who is witnessing that they too also are in the kingdom of God. Sometimes there's been a whole denomination formed out of this misunderstanding. But when you see the Spirit of God coming secondary, it is to show the Jew that the Samaritan, that the Gentile is just as much a part of the kingdom of God as the Jew is. All right. So why is that important? Because the Jews thought they were superior to Samaritans. It doesn't really matter how you grew up. We were all taught that one group is superior and another group is inferior. Fill in the blanks. The blanks change. But everybody grew up with this idea somebody's superior and someone else is inferior. For those of you up north, those southerns are dumb. Watch yourself when you go down. All right. For those of us who grew up in the South, those Northerns would cheat you. All right. And they'll run over you. And, and so there, that's just a simple thing that we're hopefully able to laugh about. But some of you really did grow up with that. But then there are other, much more sinister ways, isn't there? Of you feeling superior or inferior. And so. You know, recently we're seeing this in the national news of just, once again, that the African-American and the, the majority culture, the white group, they can't get along. And with all of the civil laws that's been done, with all the school's integration, we can't make people change their heart. And that's the reality that we are seeing but I would just point to you that something happens here in Acts chapter 8 where the Samaritan and the Jew see themselves as together and one. And it has something to do with the fact that Christ is greater than the divides. I read some other scriptures that speak to this. Colossians chapter 3 verse 11. Paul says, here there is no Jew and Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. All right, so you've got that, Colossians 3, verse 11, and then you've also got 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, 
but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Now listen to this. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. I don't give significance to their skin color, their flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all has become new. We talk about this verse and we take great comfort from this verse because it tells us that all our sins don't have to dominate us anymore and that we're new and we have a new start. And that is true from that verse. But I'm going to tell you the context of that verse is telling you that there is a whole new race. It's not African-American, it's not Caucasian, it's not Chinese, it's not Hispanic, it's not whether someone's legal or illegal. There is one dominant force at work, and it's a new creation. It is Christ. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.17 is about. That's what Colossians chapter 3, verse 11 is about. Now, here's the thing that we get in is sometimes we think, all right, well, that means we need to have different people of different skin colors in our church, and yeah, but it's much more than that. It's not just, let's make sure we have people of different races in our same worship style. That's not really counterculture or multi-diverse in our culture. It is to say, let Christ dominate. And the more we let Christ dominate over our majority preferences, the more this can be a true disciple movement community movement of the church. And I'm just going to present something to you, those of us who are in the majority. We do not and cannot even see how society gives us preferences. It has been the air we breathe. We can't tell the difference. And I would just present to you, spend some time as a minority somewhere. For you to start telling the difference and feeling the difference. I would just caution you as majority white American. Don't feel like you know all the answers or all the problems of an African American or Hispanic or Chinese person in America. Fact of the matter is I'm called for another country than America. Is one that has no boundaries here. Has no earthly ruler here. I am called and I am to be identified by a whole new race. So the question isn't necessarily for your children. Are they dating a ethnic group? The question that is prominent is, is the person they're interested in Christ? Are they in Christ? Is my neighbor, or it's not whether or not they're what race, because our, our natural tendency is to be among the same, isn't it? That's our natural tendency. We want to be among the same. But here's the thing. Christ is changing our heart, and so what we're looking for is, are they in Christ? Black, white, purple, whatever. Are they in Christ? This is part of the discipleship. And I'm not, I'm not going to tell you I've got this figured out. I'm just going to say this is what Scripture seems to be presenting here. This is what happens among the discipleship community is movement that reconciles races and part of what tells Rome and Nightdale and America there's something unique about this is that for all the laws they enact and all the segregation rules they try to apply, they cannot accomplish what Christ can do. And the church that is in Christ is a sign to America that Christ can change people's hearts. One last characteristic. The movement will gather fans who are not followers. This discipleship community movement will attract people who really like what's going on but do not actually follow Jesus. We see this in the example of Simon. He's a magician. He's known as great. Why is he known as great? Well, because he told everyone he's great. 
<laughs> Verse 9. It's amazing that works. Hey, just call me great. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm somebody. He acted the part, looked the part. And we don't know what the source of the power was, some kind of con artist, a sleight of hand, or whether there was some kind of demonic spiritual power at work. We don't know. But everyone, from the least to the greatest, verse 9, says the man is the power of God that is called great. I'm going to tell you that whatever the greatest force is in a society, when God's church comes in, God's going to target it. And say, this is what you've worshipped? Let me show you how God is greater. And I'm going to tell you, if money is the primary force of America, I'm going to tell you that probably what God's going to do is use a people who don't care about money to change that society. And the problem is, is that in the church, we are very few who don't care about money more than we care about God. So when we ask that question, what's going to take to see God move in Nightdale? If Nightdale is greatly impacted by the drive of money, then he, God's going to use a people who care little about the drive of money, who love God more. It's something for us to, to think through. And so here Simon is, he, he sees the power, he's impressed himself, like, wow, I can't do that. Uh, and so he starts listening, and in verse 13, Simon himself believed, all right? And so I would say, yeah, he's believing, he's it's like, this is true, I, I acknowledge this as true. And then something happens that reveals his heart. When Peter and John come and God, he sees how God works through them, how power is distributed through their prayers and laying on his hands, he's saying, man, I, gotta, I want in on that. I, I want the power that comes. I want the esteem. I want that. See, here's the difference between a follower and a fan. A fan looks at Christ and says, what can Christ do for me? How can he enhance my standing? How can he help my finances? How can he help me in my job? And so the fan is looking for that. And then Simon the magician is saying, hey, I want to use Christ so that I can get the great esteem that I used to always have until you guys jokers came around. I'll never forget the time when I was visiting with the family and their young 20-year-old son was killed in a car accident. I was getting there and I was going to sit down and pray with the dad and the dad says to me, what's the point of praying? I didn't keep my son safe. I was just struck with that. And I realized I was pondering what he was saying. For him, the only purpose of prayer is to keep his family safe. And if God doesn't hold true on that, then what's the point of serving God? We use God for our family. Some kind of Pez dispenser that, bam, out comes a good family. Thank you, God. God's God. He's not our helper. He's not our assistant to our own devices and own purposes. He is God, and He must He must be allowed to cross our will. The moment we don't let God cross our will, we don't treat him as God and we're not his follower, we're just a fan. And so here's Simon. Let's move it along. And God reveals exactly his heart. I'm encouraged because the Bible says, after he says, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Peter wasn't always the <laughs> upbeat preacher, you know. Here's the truth. What are you going to do with this? And Simon says, pray for me to the Lord, and nothing of what you said may come upon me. There seems to be a sense that Peter believes and Simon believes that just because you know you're wrong doesn't mean you repent. Repentance comes as a fruit of God's work in your life. Sometimes we say to ourselves, 
yeah, I know the gospel, and I want to ultimately end up like that in my life. I want to follow God someday when I've got married and have kids. But until that time comes, let me do what I want to do, and then when the time is right, then I'm going to repent. Who do you think you are to think that you can come to God like that? Repentance is a fruit of God's work. You can't call the shots and tell God what to do and tell him this is how you're going to operate your life. His words to you is, you fool. Don't you know that at any moment your life can be called up? And just because you know it's wrong doesn't mean you've got the power to repent. Repentance is a fruit of God's word. And so that's why in 2 Timothy, he tells us, and Peter says, pray that we may have granted to us repentance and escape the snare of the devil, having been taking care of him to do his will. Do you understand that if you've rejected Christ and you're, you're putting off Christ, you are ensnared by Satan and the only one that can get you out is God? Simon says, pray for me. I'm encouraged. For some of us here, you are a fan and you're not a follower, and it will be revealed at some point. And the question really is, is will it be revealed, and will you repent when it matters, or will you wait until it doesn't matter? Either way, God's going to reveal you for who you are. It'll come out. I'm going to assure you, I would much rather it come out right now where there might be mercy obtained than to be before God's judgment and expect only judgment. The movement will gather the fans who are not followers. The question is, are you a follower? Do you see yourself more as in Christ than white or black or American or Hispanic? Are you realizing I'm not a pastor, deacon, it doesn't matter. God's called me to this task. And how can I bring joy to the world around me, to the community? By my words and my deeds at your workplace. Make it a point to bring joy by how you work and the deeds you do and the words you say. Your boss may or may not thank you. It doesn't matter. You're serving him, the Lord. Let's pray.